Amen. Please take your seats. As you do so, if you've got your Bibles or you've got your Bible apps or a pew Bible is handy, please go with me this morning, not to 1 Samuel, but to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 25. We're going to leave David and his army of misfits and the marginalized. We're going to leave them in the forest of Hereth, and we're going to leave them on the cusp of kingdom advances, kingdom advances against internal enemies, threats like Saul, and external threats like the Philistines. We're going to leave them there, and we're going to turn to what Jesus teaches us in this beautiful passage that's probably familiar to you all. We're going to turn to what He teaches us in the parable of talents, what He teaches us that we pray will be kingdom advances in and through us, against our own sins, our own internal threats, and against external ones. And Lord willing, we'll be here for a couple of Sundays, this Sunday and Lord willing, next Sunday. And as we take this short diversion from the book of Samuel, we do so as, in, in, in a sense, uh, somewhat as a follow-up to what this congregation did last week in the congregational meeting. Last week in the congregational meeting, this congregation chose, elected, a pastoral search committee for an associate pastor. We're going to Matthew chapter 25, kind of in response to that, and also in response to some of the things that the session's been working on, and one, in establishing an ad hoc committee, a vision committee, and then in two, in bringing on a couple of folks to help us on a part-time basis in the interim. And so we we, want to go to Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30 because these verses in great part are driving what we're seeing taking place. Uh, As we come to the parable of talents, let me give you the the basic outline so you can kind of see that as we work our way through these verses. Uh, This, this, first of all, this, this parable, like the one that precedes it, is about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven and about the citizens of the kingdom and the king of the kingdom, about the servants of the kingdom and about the master of the kingdom. It's about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, that kingdom that has broken in when Christ came the first time, that kingdom that's expressed anywhere where Christians find themselves seeking to live out the Christian life, the kingdom that's, that's revealed as we've gathered here this morning for holy worship, the kingdom that's revealed as we go out from this place serving Christ wherever He should take us. It's about the kingdom. And it it divides up into basically three parts, three sections. We first have the challenge and the weight of blessing. The divine challenge for God's servants and the weight of that challenge and blessing. Then we see right responses to that divine challenge and a very, very wrong response to that blessing. And then lastly, we see God's response to human response. We see the blessing of those who have responded well, and we see judgment fall upon that one who does not. So we have challenge, we have response, and we have judgment. Hear now God's word. For it will be like a man. What is the it? The kingdom of heaven. For the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, 
to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also had, uh, and he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents, and here I've made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow, and gathering where you scattered not seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have you have what's yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I have not sown. Scattered seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, into that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Word of God for the people of God. Before we divide into those three sections, the, the, the challenge, the response, and the judgment, I think I need to talk a little bit about two things. First, I need to talk about this word that Jesus uses, talents the emphasis in this parable. And then I want us to look at the context. So first, a word or two about this word Jesus uses, talents. Now when we hear that word, we have a general idea of, okay, talent. Somebody is talented. That means they've got a, a natural sort of disposition and ability to do certain things and to do them well. We typically mean something that a person is good at. They are talented. I had the wonderful opportunity to step into the little painting school yesterday close to Showmars, and I got to see three very, yes indeed, three very talented young Moyer artists at work painting, painting the solar system, wasn't it? Y'all did a fantastic job. They're talented, talented painters. We talk about talented musicians. We think about Dot, and we think about Dan, and we think about Buddy and their services that they render here on Sunday after Sunday. We think maybe about those who are runners. And we think about Michael and Chris and Beard and Mike, and we say, yeah, they're talented runners, right? That's how we typically use the word talent. But that's not really 
what Jesus means here when He's speaking of talents. He's not talking about natural aptitudes or, or native abilities that we might have, but rather He's talking about something that is entrusted to servants from masters. Something that belongs to a master that the master entrusts with his servant. Uh, as one person says, the talents in this parable belong to someone else. And they are entrusted by that someone else to the servants for the servant's good and for the good of the master. In other words, these talents aren't so much abilities and aptitudes. They are really sums of money or sums of goods or maybe a weight of measure by which you measure money and why you measure goods. And they are to be used by servants to advance the interests of the owner. And most of the commentators note that these talents aren't pocket change either. Well, that's the second thing you need to know about that word. You need to know something of its value. Now, when you read the various commentators on this passage, they, they vary a good bit in what they believe a talent was worth. But they are all agreed they were worth a lot of money. And basically you've got a range of those who say, well, a talent was equal to about 15 years of wages of a common laborer. That's on the small end. To those who say a talent was worth about 38 to 40 years wages of a common laborer. So you get estimates, if we were to translate it into our economy today, from a half a million dollars to one and a quarter million dollars or more. Lots of money, at least by the way I consider money. Second thing to notice, not just the word talents, but the context. The context of this parable. Where is it located? Well, it's located in what is known as the Olivet Discourse, or the Olivet Sermon. And that is, that sermon, that discourse, that, that, that teaching that Jesus provided to His, first of all, His disciples. The audience is his group of disciples. Those who bear the name of disciples of Christ. Those who officially are supposed to be following Christ. It's a discourse, it's a sermon for them. It's delivered on the Mount of Olives. And it's delivered right before Palm Sunday. Right before Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Right before his crucifixion. Right before his death and his burial and his resurrection. And in this long message to the disciples, His disciples, the emphasis time and time again is upon judgment. Judgment. Now much of His words that Jesus uh, teaches, that gives to His disciples, much of His words have application to the disciples for the coming weeks, for the coming days and weeks and months, for, for the time period between uh, 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 between the Passion Sunday and, the, uh, Pen and then Pentecost later uh, for the immediate next few days and weeks, but also for the next several years. It, th these words that he gives to his disciples will have application particularly in the events of AD 70. In the events which would mark the fall of Jerusalem, when God's judgment would fall upon ethnic Israel for ethnic Israel in great part rejecting the Messiah. And God's judgment falling upon Israel through the hands 
of the Roman army. So this sermon had direct application for them, for the days ahead and for the years ahead. But I would also say this sermon we find in chapters 24 and 25, this sermon has application for all of Christ's disciples from that point on. It has application to us. This theme of judgment should have application for every child of God, for every person who claims to be a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The theme that Jesus Christ is coming, and when He comes, He's coming in judgment, should have a direct bearing upon how we live, how we act, the choices that we make, what we do, what we say, what we think. That's the broader context of chapter 24 and 25. Then when we zoom in on chapter 25, and particularly the first half, we have two parables. We've got the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents. In the first parable, again, a parable about the kingdom of heaven and about judgment and about the coming of Christ, believers, disciples, are called to watch for their Lord with vigilance. To watch with vigilance. Then when we come to the parable of the talents, God's disciples, Christ's disciples, are called to work with diligence. So to watch with vigilance for the return of Christ. Now to work in anticipation of the coming of Christ with diligence. And these two activities, watching and working, distinguish true believers from those who are merely professing believers. Those who have real faith, real faith, a faith that's not merely a faith of words, but a faith of action, are those who watch with vigilance and who work with diligence. And it will be they, and only they, who have a true and vital and saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be they who, by God's grace, who will enter into the marriage feast, who will enter into the joy of their master. And that same sort of point is made then at the end of chapter 25, when Jesus changes the image to a shepherd dividing what? The sheep from the goats. To drive home that same thought that true Christ followers will be distinguished. They will be revealed as true believers from mere professors of Christianity. They will be revealed by what their faith produces. Notice verses 35 and 36. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. All that to say that the parable of the talents most definitely teaches us about Christian stewardship. It does. I don't think there's any way around it. It teaches us about how individual Christians and about how congregations of Christians ought to use the money that has been entrusted into our care 
the time that has been given to us by Almighty God, the gifts, and yes, our idea of talents that have been given to us by God. How we use these things which have been given to us for kingdom purposes. Yes, this parable is about stewardship, but it's about something deeper than that. It's a call to reflect. It's a call to evaluate. Are we, am I, are you, mere professors of faith in Christ? Or are we possessors of true, vital, saving faith in Jesus. And if we are, that will be evidenced, that will be revealed through what we do. Through what we do. Not that we might earn our salvation, right? No, but because we have been saved. It will be revealed by what we do, by our watching. Are we longing and looking for the return of Christ? Are we working and using everything He has given us for His glory and for His kingdom purposes? Are we serving? Are we loving? The sick, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, for those who are in prison. Watching, working, loving, serving. That's the backdrop. Let's dive in. We can only get to the first point. Don't worry. The master's challenge and the weight of blessing. Verse 14. For it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and received the five talents. Oh, excuse me. The master of the servant came and settled accounts with them. Who's Jesus talking about? Well, it seems quite evident that the servants are Christians, or at least those who go by the title of Christian. He's speaking of his disciples, those who call him Lord those who purportedly follow after Him, those who should know the Father because they've come to know Him some bit, those who have, as we've talked about earlier, sat at Jesus' feet, those who've seen His miracles, those who've followed where He has led. He is speaking of Peter. He is speaking of Matthew. He is speaking of John. And yes, at this point He's speaking of Judas. And he is speaking, I would say, of all those through the ages since who have been outwardly identified as Christians, purported citizens of the kingdom. That's the servants. Who's the master? Well, who was the one who was about to go away from them physically for a long time? Jesus. By master. And much to the chagrin of those who have preconceived notions of what Jesus and God should be like, and they don't quite like the master presented here because he seems too mean. Against those sort of ideas, I think most clearly the master is none other than Jesus. 
He's referring to himself. Okay, so that's the, the, those are the players. What are some things to note in these three verses? First of all, notice, professing Christians are not their own. We belong to someone else. That someone else is Jesus. He is our Lord. He is our Master. And you think, Pastor Lee, you're telling us stuff we already know. Do we? He's our Lord. He's our Master. That means He calls the shots. He calls the shots. Not Lee. Not you. He calls the shots. We don't. Because He owns us by creation and by redemption. We owe Him loving obedience for all He has done for us. If we claim Him as Savior, He must be our Lord, our Master, our Ruler. What do we profess in our confession of faith this morning? We are, what? Not our own but belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. First thing to notice is, is simple, but sometimes we need to pause and see the simple. We are servants of Christ. We belong to Him. Second thing to see is that the one who owns us, the one who has authority over us, the one who has the authority to direct us, the one who would lay down his life on our behalf for us, he does entrust to us talents. He does bless us with resources. He blesses each and every one of us with resources to use for whose glory? His. His. And those talents, those resources... Who do they belong to? Him. They are on loan to you. They are on loan to us. He owns us and He owns the talents that He entrusts into our care. Notice, He doesn't hoard them. He doesn't hoard them. Hold on to them. He gives them. He entrusts them into our care. My grandfather used to love to quote a variant of Psalm 50, verse 10. He'd add a twist with a twinkle in his eye. He would say something like this, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the taters under those hills. In other words, God owns what? Everything. Everything. The simple truth being, our God owns it all. All belongs to Him. And amazingly, He's gracious to put into our hands talents, blessings, rich, rich blessings. And again, notice, He's not stingy. He's not stingy in what He gives to us to use. Even the third servant, 
at the most conservative of estimates, was entrusted with a half a million dollars. Here, $500,000, go use it. Go use it for my glory. God is not stingy. Brothers and sisters, our God is no miser. Even the least of us has been entrusted with so much bounty. Even when you're complaining and whining about not ends not being made, making ends meet, having enough, you are rich beyond compare. Why do we so easily lose sight of that? Why do you? But there's more here. Look back at verse 15. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. Now notice the next phrase. To each according to his ability. The distribution of talents is not distributed evenly, is it? The, the sum of money it's not arbitrary either, is it? He gives it according to ability. In other words, the master has assessed his servants. The master knows his servants. The master knows what they've done. The master has a good idea of what they're going to do. And those who've been found faithful in the past, he gives more. And those, maybe the newcomer, are the ones who have been a little bit on the slothful side. He doesn't give as much. God chooses. Remember, he's, he owns everything. The owner of everything gets to choose. But he doesn't choose arbitrarily. I think this means, and sometimes this is hard for us Americans to take, it means that Christ's disciples are not all created equal, with equal skills, with equal abilities, with equal opportunities. I know you're an American, and that, just cr- and that makes you cringe. <laughs> Yet, though there are differences, all have enormous kingdom resources at their disposal. But they're not all at the same level for everybody. Let's not marvel at what another person has. Let's marvel at what God has entrusted to us. And again, that goes against our culture. It goes against some of our cultural lines and mantras. One writer gives us three. You'll find this, I think, in one of the articles in the back of your bulletin. Three lines that our culture says. Our culture says if you work hard enough, you can be anything you want to be. It's a lie. True, we have lots of opportunities in a free world. But each of us, dear brothers and sisters, have personal limitations. 
Some of you are far more talented than I am and can do all kinds of stuff I can never do. And not all of us can be president just because we want to be. I'm not sure all of us want to be president. But if we did, just because we want to doesn't mean we can, right? Second lie, you can be the best in the world. You can be your best, but being your best is very different from being the best, right? Third lie, everyone's a winner and everyone deserves a trophy. Well, in competitions, clearly, not everyone's a winner. There's some losers. Any of y'all lost anything? Come on, it's not just me. Those are the lies our culture tells us. To one, he has given five talents. To another, two. To another, one. To each, according to his ability. Although all are enormously wealthy in what was entrusted to them, not all were equally wealthy. This is, a, this is going to be a simple statement. You've heard it before. Write it down. It's not a matter of how much you have, but what you do with what you have. It's not a matter of what you have. It's what you do with what you have. Uh, one of my professors in a sermon summed up this portion of this text. He said, the point of the story so far is that Christ has entrusted to his church, his church with gifts, and those gifts are to be employed for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his kingdom's sake. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to him. What we own doesn't belong to us. It belongs to him. All that he has given us. And he has given us so that we might glorify Him, and that we might do good to our neighbor. The point here is that Christ has furnished all of His people with personal resources for the sake of building up His kingdom. And that's what I want you to leave here with, and that's what I want you to meditate on. I'm going to give you a homework assignment. And it's going to be, in a sense, something that you probably should always be doing, and maybe you do, but if you haven't, then make sure you do. I want you to make two lists. I want you to take two inventories. This week, if you have an opportunity to start it this afternoon or this evening, do so. This week, reflect on Christ's Lordship of you, and reflect on what He has provided you. Make a literal list of His blessings. Make a literal list of what you have in your possession right now that you know it's come from God. And, and, and do two things for that list. Make it real concrete. Okay? And, and I'm going to talk about uh, Jerry and Linda and Hannah. Their list, I know, is going to have on it shower, a hot shower. It's going to have on it a western toilet. Make a list. Make it concrete. But also make it inclusive. 
not just physical blessings, not just material blessings, not just tangible assets. Yes, those, but also spiritual assets as well. You may have a Sunday school teacher. List that person. You may have somebody who oftentimes comes up to you and asks you, how are you doing? What can I pray about for you? List that person. List the material things you have, but also list the spiritual blessings that you have. That's the first exercise. It might take you a long time if you do it well. Second exercise, second inventory. Take inventory of what has been entrusted to Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. Work through your mind all the blessings that God has entrusted into our hands. This facility, these accruements, lights, air conditioning, really like that blessing in the summer. The Word. Precious covenant children. Aged saints. Everybody in between. Start to make a list, an inventory. Then all I want you to do, once you've got those two lists, look over them, sit there, Meditate and feel the weight. The weight of those blessings that are on your individual shoulders and our collective shoulders. And as you feel that weight, say a simple prayer. By your grace, Lord, with gratitude in my heart, Enable me to be a good and faithful servant. How could I not be in light of all that Jesus has done for me and is doing for me now? That's all I want you to do. Two lists, meditation, simple prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to consider the beautiful teaching of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It strikes home. Once we start to unpack it, we recognize ourselves to be servants who have received so much from your good and gracious hands. Lead us to have hearts of gratitude And lead us to humbly pray to you and lead us to action. For we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.